Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards. Episode 51. The Return of the Bowl. First, I need to issue a correction. In episode 44, A Fast for Heraclius, I did not leave much room for nuance and linked the events in Jerusalem to the modern-day practices of the Coptic Lent. But to be fair, there is lots of nuance in the modern practices. The evolution of the Fast of Heraclius into the Preparation Week is on shaky ground and there is an alternative explanation. For one, Heraclius' popularity plummeted pretty quickly in Egypt once Cyrus came on board, so it is hard to see why would the Copts fast to absolve him of a vow. Second, there was an ancient tradition in Jerusalem for an eight-week fast that could have slowly made its way as a standard practice in Egypt. So, it might be because of Heraclius, but it may not be. And it's important to keep that in mind. Thank you for the listener who alerted me to my error. So when we last stopped, the military operation in Egypt seemed to be over, and Amr started his tenure as the de facto ruler of the province, with some symbolic lip service to the caliph and the excess grain going to Medina, instead of Constantinople. The Melkite church had a new patriarch, an Alexandrian deacon named Peter. And Benjamin, the long-exiled Coptic Pope, was still in hiding, and for the most part irrelevant. And not just irrelevant as a person. Rather, the Coptic church influence at this point was greatly diminished, and it lay almost lifeless. Throughout its 2,000 years history, this period was one of the darkest. It is quite a miracle that it survived through it. In the decade of Cyrus's rule, most of the influential Egyptians switched over to the Melkite church. Not to mention, many Miaphysite churches were essentially confiscated and turned into Melkite ones with its lands and endowment transferred over. Even inside the rural villages, where the Coptic Church previously reigned supreme, the constant wars and persecution have driven off the bishops to the monasteries, breaking down communication between clergy and people. 
the monasteries in the desert were the last bastion of Miaphysite Christianity. And it is from there that the whole land would be slowly reclaimed. You see, she knew that the ducks from last episode, one of the three officials that John of Nicot accused of, quote, hating the Christians, had an idea for Amor. Why not bring back Benjamin and use him and his spiritual authority to govern the affairs of the Copts and the church? Unlike the Melkite patriarch in Alexandria, Benjamin had zero ties with Constantinople and was practically no influence with the aristocrats or any significant financial resources, the Pope is unlikely to resist the Amr's rule in any major way. Now, Chunuda's motivation here are pretty complicated, and he's walking a tightrope that Coptic officials will have to walk again and again. On one hand, expressing loyalty to anyone but Amr or the Islamic government in general was at best not good for your career, at worst deadly. But in the same time, I believe some of them at least were genuinely interested in improving the affairs of the Coptic Church, so long as it did not in any way compromise their loyalty to whoever is in charge. So for Shinoda, it was first about helping Amr govern by getting Benjamin back from exile, then, as a secondary issue, help Benjamin out of piety and return him to a position of influence. Which is illustrated nicely in the fact that Shinoda was so disconnected from the Coptic church that he had no idea where the Pope was actually hiding. At any rate, Amr agreed with Shinoda's proposal about returning Benjamin and issued a declaration proclaiming, quote, There is protection and security for the place where Benjamin, the patriarch of the Coptic Christians, is, and peace from God. Therefore, let him come forth secure and tranquil, and administer the affairs of his church and the government of his nation. Notice that last part, government of his nation, which sums up nicely the aspiration of the early caliphate. Amr had no intentions of forming a radically new government or assimilate anyone to be part of this government. The plan was, as one of the Muslim sources put it, to guard the garden with our spears and of course get paid for that service. Had the Coptic Church of Arms' time been as, as influential and powerful as the ones in Cyril or Seuphilus' time, Pope Benjamin would have probably taken Amr at his word and really governed his nation. But Benjamin's church was struggling, so all that he could do was to put it back in good order. And by the time this task was done, it would be too late, and the spears guarding the garden would be capable and interested in how it works. After the proclamation, Benjamin made his way to Alexandria, where Amr and Shnuda were staying to prepare for the Libyan camping. 
Coming with him was a delegation from the monks of the desert of Sekiris, modern Wadi Natrun, who also wanted to speak to Amr. Their entrance to Alexandria was a bit disappointing, and probably completely went unnoticed. Only 13 years ago, under the Persians, Benjamin was the undisputed leader of Alexandria. But now, he was in a different world, and the city was a different city. It was not the city that welcomed back Athanasius with a triumph-like parade, with the whole population lining up to see him. No, this was a subdued city, and Benjamin was a stranger. The monastery was his home, not the city of Alexander. And in all likelihood, the Alexandrians, unlike the rural population, were divided in their allegiances between the Coptic and the Melchite churches. Thus, though Benjamin's return went completely unnoticed by Amr and Shenouda, and someone had to go to Shenouda and inform him that the Bob has returned. Shenouda then, keeping with the rule of ruler before patriarch, went to Amr instead of Benjamin and informed him of the return. Amr, making clear who's in charge, summoned the Pope before him. The two men then met, where the Arab general concluded that Benjamin is not a threat, unquote, a man of God. He then gave him the freedom to operate in Alexandria, or whatever place he likes, and asked the Pope to pray for him on his upcoming campaign in Libya. The monks also asked for a guarantee of safety, which Amr gave them in writing, a letter which according to Islamic traditions survived for 300 years and the monks proudly displayed in the monastery as a proof of their rights under the caliphate. After the meeting, Pope Benjamin immediately set out to restore the Miaphysite bishops to their see, and battle with the Melkite church to win back those who have defected under Cyrus. As the history of the patriarch puts it, quote, He drew to himself most of the people whom Heraclius, the heretical prince, had led astray, for he induced them to return to the right face by his gentleness, exhorting them with courtesy and consolation. But on the whole, when it came to the bishops, who controlled the churches and the land owned by the church, it seems that his success was limited. For the author of the history of patriarchs continues, quote, Likewise the bishops, who had denied their faith, he invited to return to the Orthodox creed, and some of them returned with abundant tears, but the others would not return through shame before men that it should be known among them that they have denied the face. And so they remained in their misbelief until they died. So again, Pope Benjamin was fighting an uphill battle basically his entire reign. Not against the Arabs, but just to get his people under the Miaphysite church. He did not stay in Alexandria for long. Like I said, it was not really his home. He ended up residing in a monastery 
in the suburbs of the city. They stayed true to the Miaphysite face, and it became the headquarters of the Coptic Patriarchy, rather than any of the impressive churches of Alexandria, which was firmly in Milkite hands. By 644, Pope Benjamin was settled in his new home. So was Amr in the Arab garrison city at the foot of Babylon, which was growing fast with new buildings and a mosque rising from the ground. Amr was quite happy with all of his achievements. All what he needed now is for Medina to cooperate and his arrangement with the Caliph to hold. Unfortunately, Medina had other plans. The wealth and the slaves of the new conquest have transformed the otherwise obscure oasis. Omar ibn al-Khattab, the caliph, has ruled in the manner of a tribal leader. The fancy titles and court ceremonies of Persia and Constantinople were still entirely foreign. Omar lived in a normal house and was quite accessible to anyone in the oasis. Anyone could bring a petition, complaint, or even a suggestion on how to run the place. If you conquered a territory in the name of Islam, then, like Amr in Egypt, you could keep it and rule it as its emir, literally, a prince. So far, under him, the caliphate expanded from Libya in the west to Iran in the east. The basic foundation of taxation were established. So was the settlement of the garrisons and leaving them off the land via the system of Duan. Fustat in Egypt, Kufa and Basra in Iraq, and Damascus in Syria all became important cities that linked the growing empire. The four emirs leading those cities were fairly independent of Medina and responsive to their men above all else. Naturally, they kept most of the money collected, and Medina basically got whatever was left over after everyone took their cut and was satisfied. The caliph gave orders and guidance to his emirs, but on the ground it was more of suggestions rather than formalized central government. Essentially, like I said before, the caliph at this point was more of a tribal leader than an all-powerful emperor. But that's about to change. In November 644, a Persian slave took a knife and stabbed the accessible caliph to death. There seems to be no wide-ranging conspiracy behind it, just a dissatisfied slave who resented his masters. For three days, Omar laid between life and death in Medina, and the fate of the caliphate hanged in the balance. Despite his success, there was minefield all over the place that are ready to explode to whoever was going to follow him. In Iraq, tensions were extremely high between the original conquerors who received the highest pay from the Duan and their tribal leaders who emigrated after the conquest and received the lower pay. In Syria, its governor, 
one named Yazid, died from the plague, and his younger brother, a dangerously ambitious fellow, Muawiyah, was accumulating power quickly. And finally, in Egypt, Amr guarded the revenue very closely, and it would not take much for him to break away. Even in Medina, the old tensions between the Prophet's family and the Quraysh elite was alive and well. Ali, the Prophet's son-in-law, had made an alliance with the elite of Medina to check the growing power of the Quraysh, who were quickly taking over all the levers of power. Omar, the dying caliph, was from that Quraysh elite, and before he died, he appointed a six-member committee to choose the next caliph from among themselves. All of them will like him. Elites from Quraysh and its power base, Mecca. Now, the clear-cut natural candidate to follow Omar was Ali, but his alliance with the elite of Medina was a bit of a problem for the Quraysh leadership. All the emirs in the caliphate were from Quraysh, as well as all the men who were supposed to choose the next caliph. Thus, Ali was snubbed again for one Osman, another Quraysh merchant from Mecca, who promised to increase the Quraysh control and the fledgling empire, and increase the money flowing in into Arabia by imposing a bitter centralized government. To us, this meant that Amr ibn al-As, the emir of Egypt, had to go. Within a year of the elevation of Osman, an officer under Amr was assigned to take upper Egypt from him, then very quickly promoted to take over the whole country. Amr, as you would expect, was livid at his removal. He had fought the Romans for three straight years, and so his own son almost did to acquire the land. And now that he finally did, that upstart Osman has removed him. Had he saw a chance of ignoring the order and get away with it, he would have taken it. But Osman knew what he was doing, and before removing Amr, he made sure that the governor of Syria, Muawiyah, was behind him. Syria had the most Arab soldiers currently, as it, as it bordered Anatolia and the lands of the Romans. So in a way, Muawiyah was the only emir who can check the power of Amr. And in that instance, he definitely did. Not necessarily out of love to Osman, but more to shore up his own position, and maybe, if Amr decided to rebel, add Egypt to his domain. At any rate, by the end of 644, Amr ibn al-As, backed in a corner, left Egypt for a comfortable retirement, but with eyes wide open for opportunities to reclaim his position as the emir of Masr. He did not have to wait long. The new governor, Abdullah ibn Sa'd, gave him the opportunity to be back pretty quickly by alienating 
both Arabs and Copts, right out of the gate. You see, he was hired with the explicit instruction to increase the revenue flowing from Egypt to Medina. This translated into two things. One, he increased taxation on the natives, especially on Alexandria, which was still a commercial powerhouse. Two, he cut down an abbey that the Arab soldiers and their family received. As the history of the patriarchs puts it, quote, he was a lover of money. He collected wealth for himself in Egypt, and he was the first who built the Diwana Masr and commanded that all the taxes of the country should be regulated there. Now, to be fair, Abdullah ibn Sa'd probably formalized the Diwan and kept records to forward to Medina, rather than build the whole system from scratch. The system as a whole was started a bit earlier, but Amr ibn al-As just paid his own men and kept the rest to himself, with no need for a formal process or records. Either way, the increased taxes made waves in Alexandria, and the leading men of the city decided to do something about it. Communication was established with Constantinople, and the imperial forces were promised assistance if they come to Egypt. In Constantinople, the young emperor was slowly establishing himself, and a great victory to claim Egypt back would have made him a legendary hero, similar to his grandfather Heraclius. The Arabs at this point, other than Muawiyah in Syria, who was 10 years ahead of everyone else, were uninterested in mastering the sea. As Amr ibn al-As pointed out to the Caliph, dismissing the idea of a navy, quote, those within the ship are like worms in a log. So, on paper, the plan was pretty reasonable. Assemble a navy in secret, retake Alexandria with the help of its inhabitants, and use it as a base to conquer the rest of Egypt. The garrison that the Arabs left in the city was probably around a thousand men, which wasn't enough to keep the base, let alone defend the city from a professional army. So quietly and without attracting much attention, the Emperor Constance sent the navy and retook Alexandria successfully with very little fighting by the end of 645. This development completely threw the plans of the Caliph Osman to get rid of Amr ibn al-As forever. The new governor might be good at raising revenue, but he was nowhere near as talented as Amr in leading men and fighting wars. Besides, the bay cut that he tried to push through on the Arab soldiers was fresh in everyone's mind, and they hated him for it. Osman, to his credit, quickly realized that he would not be able to save Egypt without Amr. So, he swallowed his pride and recalled Amr back and promised him to give him the governorship again if he can rid Egypt of the Romans. Amr ibn al-As then entered Egypt back to Ahiru's welcome from his men 
who saw the general as their leader and defender of their privileged bay. This back and forth in the Arab camp, as you would expect, took two to three months to play out. In those months, they were disorganized, without a leader, and without a plan. So what did the Roman army do in Alexandria in this critical time? Absolutely nothing. Well, I shouldn't say nothing. The food in Alexandria ran out quickly. So they started sending raids to the Delta to take food and supplies from the villagers. The Delta, barely out from the long, protracted battles with the Arabs, was not in a great position to support a large army for an extended period. So as you would expect, its common folks have had enough, and Arabs or Romans, they just wanted to keep their food to their families. So the Romans alienated these guys pretty quickly. Alexandria and its rich merchants may have welcomed the Byzantine army with its eunuch leader, Manuel, with an open arm. But the rest of Egypt, well, they had enough of war and the killing, raping, and burning of crops that it brought. Had Manuel moved quickly, he would call the Arabs unprepared and spread out the burden of feeding his army. Alas, Manuel did not move from Alexandria until Am was back in Egypt and his army organized and was a plan. But to be fair, Manuel did have a plan, and you could sort of see where he's coming from. The eunuch probably hoped that the Arabs would come to him in Alexandria, where he would be able to fight them from an excellent defensive position and in the same time decrease the chances of a successful retreat of the Arabs as they would have the marshes of the delta to their back. But if there is anything that the Byzantines should have learned from the last decade of war, it should have been to respect the military abilities of the Arabs and their tactical understanding of their surroundings. Even without Amr at the helm, the Arab forces had a deep class of experienced officers who not only knew how to fight, but more importantly, when and where to fight. So Amr, upon his return, pulled all the Arab forces from the Delta and decided to wait for the Byzantines to fight him in a place of his choosing, not theirs. So after waiting in Alexandria for close to half a year, Manuel gave up an idea that the Arabs would come to him and started to move his army slowly through the delta until he made it to Nico, our fortified city on the western end of the delta. Manuel decided to end his march there and not go any farther. Nico, while in the delta still, was good enough for Amr, especially outside the city walls and on the western side of the Nile, where it was more desert than marshes. Thus, the Arab army marched as well, and camped outside of Nico, where Manuel stayed in the city. And as Nico was a good defensive position to retreat to, Manuel ordered that a battle be given. It was a true battle by all accounts, 
and Amr himself fought in it on horseback until his horse was hit by an arrow and fell. And even then, the general dismounted and were in the sick of the fight on foot. This was it for the Arabs. Losing this battle really meant losing the war and the whole of Egypt, the crowning achievement of the conquests as far as Amr was concerned. Slowly, the battle was turning toward the Arabs, who really had no other option but to fight. The Romans, on the other hand, had a fortress to retreat to if things got bad. So, when it became clear that the Arabs were gaining the upper hand, Manuel ordered a retreat to Nico and then to Alexandria. And Amr quickly ordered his men to chase after the retreating Romans to avoid having to hopelessly besiege Alexandria all over again. The chase was unsuccessful, and Manuel was able to gather most of his army back to Alexandria, unlock the doors. So, for the second time, the Arabs stood at the foot of the walls of Alexandria, and the city seemed invincible. As you can imagine, Amr's decision to leave the walls of Alexandria standing after the first time, left him and his men mortified. After a bit of reflection, he made it clear to his men that this time he would not repeat the same mistake again. He promised them that upon capturing the city, he would level its walls and give them a free hand to plunder its walls. The stage was again set for the fate of the city of Alexandria. It was also set for Pope Benjamin to finally play his part in the conquest of Egypt. A word of caution, so. This comes exclusively from the Islamic traditions, and they confuse Benjamin with the Mokaukas, so there is a lot of speculation here. But it seems that Benjamin aware of the potential disaster if Alexandria fell, made his way to the Arab camp to try and work out a deal with Amr. Benjamin requested from Amr the following. 1. To differentiate between the Milkite church and the Coptic church, and quote, not to grant as favorable terms to the Romans as to me. 2. To spare the Copts in Alexandria because it is not they who have broken the treaty and invited the Roman. 3. Once Benjamin dies, he is to be buried in a specific church in Alexandria that he pointed out to Amr, which is just another way to request taking that church from Milkite hands and ensuring it stays in Coptic ones forever, since he will be buried in it. This incidence is the only point in our narrative that both Benjamin have taken an active role and deal with the Arabs or the Romans in any meaningful way. And even then, Amr's response was a vague, the last request is the easier of the three, i.e. the burial in church part. So on the whole, Amr did not promise anything, and really, Either he did not feel that he needed Benjamin's help, or more likely, he correctly surmised that Benjamin 
is too insecure in his position to offer him any real help. Al-Amr definitely had no plans to favor one church over another, so the policy of indifference continued for a while. As far as the fall of the city itself is concerned, we have two stories coming down to us from the Arab sources which contradict each other. One says that the city was betrayed by one of its gatekeepers, and the other says that the Arabs took the catapults and other siege weaponry in Babylon and figured out how to deploy them against the city. I favor the second option, as it seems that the Romans fought a chaotic battle inside the city, where Manuel himself died in the fighting. Either way, the Arabs eventually broke into the city, and as promised, Amr gave his men a free hand. From the east to the west, the city was being destroyed block by block. Finally, Amr stood in the middle, probably in the Agora, and ordered his men to put away their swords. On the spot, a mosque was built, and the Arabs called it the Mosque of Mercy, the first mosque to be built in Alexandria. In the same time, during the fighting, the church of St. Mark, housing his remains, caught fire. The place that saw the Apostle Mark brought down the roots of Christianity in Egypt, where Arius first preached and shook the Christian world. This church, more than any other, symbolized the birthplace of Coptic Egypt. Now, it was burning. This, of course, is not the end. Like the Copts, the Church of St. Mark will be saved from utter destruction and eventually rebuilt. But now, in the shadow of the mosque, a different church in a different world. Thank you for listening. Farewell and until next week.